0: The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Rack and
1: Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is the newscast for episode 71 for the week of June 11th, 2018, and I finally have Alex back. Alex, where have you been the last two weeks? Uh, You know, I've been a world traveler, Rob.
0: Uh, a couple weeks ago, it was my dad's birthday, so went back to Ohio to say hello. Um, turned 70, so that was exciting for him. Uh, it was nice seeing the family, and then last week I had
1: a college reunion um, in the even more exciting uh, Central Iowa. So when you say so, a world traveler, yeah, you mean a very small part of the Midwest of the United States. Exactly. Perfect. Well, yeah. Perfect. Well, welcome back. We're glad to have you. There is a, a plethora of interesting news for us to go through this week. Most definitely. But before we do that, let's uh just kind of go through our, our spiel here at the beginning. Uh, as a reminder, we do have a Slack channel, a, 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 an active Slack channel where you can come get involved with the security community here in Denver, Um, what, 470-ish people involved in the channel. Um, good conversations on there on a regular basis. So come get to know some other folks in the Colorado community scene. Uh, please review us on all of the places that you can review us, including iTunes.
0: We'd love to get uh, high marks on that. Um, and then we also have a mailing list. So if you go check out the website, uh, you can sign up for the mailing list. You will get
1: notified uh, when we have new episodes. You'll get the show notes, uh, lots of interesting stuff like that. And did you know that the, you can have a you can be a Patreon? You can sponsor the Colorado Equal Security Podcast individually. We have a Patreon campaign set up. You can go out there and... Uh, donate a certain amount per month. If you if you donate ten bucks a month, you get a shout out on the show and a free T shirt. Uh, and we do have a new Patreon supporter this week, Trent Hine, who was a guest host or excuse me, a guest uh, feature interview a, co- uh, a couple months ago. Um, he he just set, signed up. So thank you very much, Trent. We appreciate yes. your support very much. Thanks a bunch, Trent. And um, we, what we do with those that money is, we, none of it goes into our pockets. This is all used to fund the podcast and to anything we can want to do here around hosting fees and new new um, hardware we need. And we just recently this week bought a new. Um, set of, of Colorado Eco Security magnets, some magnets rather than just stickers, right? Yeah, so you can have it on your fridge, you know, stick it to the side of your car. And... Uh, I assume I'll see cars all over the city with them on there. I, I'm sure you af- will after you're done with your your batch of magnets.
0: <laughs> uh, great. Well, let's jump into the news. So first, Colorado ranks number five on the list of best overall state economies. Super super exciting there. Um, this is a study done by Wallet Hub. In addition to us being number five on the overall list, um, Colorado was number two in highest GDP growth, number four in most startup activity, and was tied with Hawaii for
1: lowest unemployment. Pretty good. Um, So looking at that same list, they do have a worst economies in the United States. And if we want to pick on number 51, because there are 51 states if you count the District of Columbia as a state. Um, So number 51 is Louisiana. Uh, 50, Mississippi, and then Alaska comes in there at 49. So kind of an interesting smattering there of, of worst states from an economic perspective. Yes. Yeah. Not Just, from a cultural perspective. Right, completely economic. Yeah. Not passing any other judgments there. All right. Uh, moving on. We we have a uh, an article here that tells us that Denver is replete with Californians who have moved here. So, Rob, where are you from? Uh, I'm actually from California. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. This is uh, an interesting study all about me. You can see my my picture right in the middle of it. I moved here in in 2001 um, because the uh, Colorado had the best girl in it. That's why I moved here. Yeah. Not for jobs or or affordable housing. So Denver
0: was the number ten spot for California's Californians, attracting
1: 2.7 percent of those moving out of California. Interestingly enough, if you were going to leave California, the number one place you're going to go is New York City. That's where 7.3% of them moved. You know, my thought would be, I'm going to leave California because it's too expensive, right? There's,
0: you know, I can't live in California, so where am I going to go? New York York City. City. Yeah, it's
1: perfect, right? The most affordable spot in uh, North America. And after that was Las Vegas, which, you know, I guess it's not a surprise close by. Well, I think what happened there was they were going to Las Vegas to gamble. (laughs) They just got stuck. Can't afford the gas to get home. And, uh, and now they live in Las Vegas. Uh, next, uh, Salt Lending is a, um, a blockchain company, and they are offering a course in blockchain along with Regis University. I'm really glad this article showed up. I was worried we were going to make it through a week without having any blockchain discussion at all. You know, so every week Rob and I, you know, scour the internet for news, and every
0: week I do my best to find a blockchain story just to get under Rob's skin. Blockchain,
1: blockchain, blockchain. <laughs> Uh, so this uh, this four week not for credit pilot course is offered through Regis, um, through their Anderson College of Business, and it's titled Blockchain for Social Impact. So this isn't nice. blockchain for financial. This is a social impact aspect. Um, and if you look at like the people who registered for it, it were not your general technologists. It was a bunch of uh, more liberal arts and you know social social perspective type type majors. And if you heard this and thought, man, I want to take that class, I am pretty sure it is sold out. Yeah, they said it sold out within 24 hours. However, if you just show up, you might get in. Don't tell them them I sent you, but <laughs> go ahead and give it a shot. Uh, all right. Cybersecurity startups gathering in Colorado Springs as part of a program to help them grow. Um, so this was put together by the, the National Cybersecurity Center, right? Yeah, so they, I believe, are doing um, an
0: accelerator also down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Vance Brown, the CEO of the NCC or interim CEO of the NCC, um, put in some money to
1: help the the incubator get off the ground. And they have four startups that they got coming in there together. I have never heard of any of them. I don't feel like I'm even close to ever having heard of any of them. It's a uh, barn owl biteable foods. And that's B Y T a B L E for <laughs> biteable. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's computer foods. Uh, Mandy AI and Kubrick's, Q-B-R-I-C-S. Like I said, I've never heard of any of them. I don't, they don't look even vaguely familiar.
0: Yeah, and it, the, the possibilities for folks in the, um, in the incubator down there are around uh, cybersecurity technology um, or blockchain. And I don't know that any of these are specific cybersecurity um, plays, but the, that the last one you mentioned, Kubrick's, um, is using blockchain to help automate regulatory compliance uh, for workers in the H-1B visa program. So very exciting there. That does sound really exciting. I couldn't agree more. Um, so moving on from that, uh, Aaron Lafferty uh, put a post in LinkedIn this week uh, talking about the data breach survey that he conducted and the results that came out of
1: that. Yeah. So-, so we had actually had this survey on our on our newsletter, a couple of times we talked about it on the podcast, a couple of times to get folks to fill it in. Um, Aaron's just doing some research to see how do people perceive blame when a company gets breached. Is it the company's fault or is it the attacker's fault, really? Right. And uh,
0: it was a pretty uh, significant sway in terms of people thinking it should
1: be the company's fault. Yeah. Sixty. Basically, you only had two choices. You had to you had to pick who's it who's at, at at fault here. And the company was at fault about sixty percent of the time. I think it depended on the scenario, but there was only like one or two scenarios. I think, or maybe there was. I think there was just one scenario um, that swung the other way, right. to So the attacker. So interestingly enough, the vast majority of people think is the company's fault when they get breached. I I really struggle with this as there's no, I can't think of any other situation where we actually as a society, agree that it's the fault of the victim when a criminal, you know, victimizes them.
0: Right, and I mean, I think that's the whole point of, of Aaron's research, right, is that we have this problem with victim shaming in, in cybersecurity where something bad happens to a company, um, they're they're victimized by a criminal, and we hold that that company accountable and say, hey,
1: what's wrong with you? Why did you get victimized? Right, it, it, it certainly is it's reasonable to say, we're going to hold you accountable, but it's, but it's still the, primarily the fault of the criminal who did that. Right. Right. Uh, I, I think we got to find that balance somewhere that, you know, yes, we all have to, to make sure we're implementing security programs that meet the basics. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, it is a criminal who has broken the law to go do these things. And, and as a society, that's probably where we should be focusing most of our attention. Fixing that, fixing the root causes and making that not so, so profitable. Maybe, I don't know. It's a tough yeah, question.
0: I don't know either, but it's some interesting research. Uh, so next uh, we had an article. I know it was talked about last week, even though I wasn't here, uh, but logarithm was acquired by Tama Bravo. And we had an article this week um, from Chris Peterson,
1: um, who is the CEO of logarithm. just talking about it. Chris, the founder and he's not the CEO. Andy is the CEO. i oh, sorry. He's the, uh, uh, Chris CTO. is, what is he? CTO. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what's neat about this and this came out after last week's podcast uh, was all set um, this this bot this blog really talks about chris's plan for the future with with logarithm right so um, there's been a lot of talk you know what does it mean to get bought does it mean you know does it mean you, you're you're going to say the same. Are they going to try and pull out profits? What are the, what's it look like? And and really, I think the good news for logarithm employees and fans and customers is is these kind of private equity, Tomer Bravo. Their intention is to add value to the company, right? Um, I I don't know exactly the details here on this transaction, but I do know Ping was bought by a private equity firm. It's a competitor of Tomer Bravo, and um, the the basic model is. They invest a lot of money into their companies that they buy so they can go sell them in some number of years to get a great return, right? Um, So they're not looking to cut costs. They're not looking to get rid of people. They're looking to invest and make the company, you know, more successful so they can make another exit, you know, and call it three to five years. Yeah. So, again, congratulations to Uh Next, we had a blog from IntelliSecure. Theft of intellectual property costs more than you think. Yeah, this was interesting. I, I found this one. It's actually from a few weeks ago. It's not brand new. Um, but I, I thought it had some really interesting perspectives. It talks about a study by Bromium um, that said that cybercrime generates about 1.5 trillion dollars per year. That's globally. It's a lot of money. It's a big number. Um, and and when they looked at what what's that 1.5 trillion breakdown into, about 500 million of it. So about a third of it actually comes from intellectual property theft. Um, whether that means you know stealing of Designs, you know, so you can go make the the product that the other companies making, or customer lists, or you know, other kinds of intellectual property. That that's a big that's a big number, and probably something we don't think a ton about in terms of an economic damage to our companies.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I know that uh, you know, in many instances, that is something that uh, that really just gets overlooked, right? So you think, oh, well, I'm going to you know protect the confidentiality of my consumers' data. Um, I'm gonna, you know, make sure that my systems are available. But people don't often think
1: about uh, intellectual property because it, it's less tangible, right? Yeah, it's pretty pretty good. Um, I appreciate them putting that together. Of course, it of course this kind of a research always is gonna tell you you need more DLP, which is what they do. Um, but it's still an interesting point, and I appreciate taking a look at it. Next article we have is actually for Mitch Tannenbaum. We've talked about Mitch's. Uh, blog once or twice before, he did a really nice summary of the new Colorado cybersecurity law that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Were you here for that or was that? I was not. You weren't here for that either. So I don't know if you know, you're now probably breaking the law. Yeah. <laughs> Colorado now has a new cybersecurity law and let's go through what the law tells us, shall we? We shall. Oh. So it's a nice summary of it. To start off, you have to have a written policy for the destruction of of a paper and electronic documents containing PII. Okay. You have to implement and maintain reasonable security practices that are appropriate to the nature and size of your business. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, If you use any third-party services, you have to require that that third-party implement and maintain their own security practices. Also good. You've never thought about that, right? Never. Never once. Uh, In case of a breach, you have to notify uh, residents, Colorado residents with specific information about the breach, I think it's within 30 days. 30 days, I think yeah. was the one of the big headlines, right? Is that, hey, now we have a 30 day yep. breach notification. If the breach impacts more than 500 people, you have to notify the attorney general. If it impacts more than a thousand people, you have to notify the credit reporting agencies as well. Uh, if encrypted data is breached, notification is not required. If the encryption mechanism is not compromised. So everyone, please make sure do not include your encryption key or decryption keys with your encrypted data. And then uh, last point here is that criminal charges may be brought against a business under circumstance, certain circumstances. I don't know how you bring criminal charges against a business, though. Negligence? I don't know. I mean, if you're negligent for cr- the law. isn't Isn't that a civil charge, though, if it's negligence? Isn't that a money instead of? Does it criminal mean you go to jail? I don't, I guess I don't really know.
0: I think it's really more about the, the uh, impact, right? It's whether
1: you're fined or whether you're going to jail. Yeah. So that's a a nice summary of the new law that goes into effect. I think it's August 1st, I believe. And I I think it's great.
0: Uh, I'm glad to see that us, uh, Colorado is pushing the, the States forward. Um, You know, in my opinion, there's, uh, there's nothing that's too onerous in that bill.
1: I, I think it's all pretty good things that people should be doing. A 30 day notification period could be onerous depending on the details of a breach, right? That's depending, but, but that's out there, you know, a company like yours or mine that does business across multiple States. That's, you know, that's not any faster than the, the fastest other States anyway. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: so next um, rock cyber is a cybersecurity company launching in June. So um, our friend uh, rock Lambros, uh, put out a, uh, a press release this week about his new cybersecurity company, Rock Cyber. So, congratulations
1: to Rock. Yeah, so he's going to do you know security consulting, CISO as a service, um, risk assessments, kind of the, your security consulting suite of services. Uh, congratulations to him, and, and looking forward to hearing some success on on how that goes. Uh, well, next, we have some recognition for one of our own community here. Gail Corey has received ISACA's prestigious Chair Award. Have you, heard, have you heard of the chair award before? Uh, is
0: that where they, uh, like at a, a Jewish wedding, they put you on a chair and, and hoist you up and walk you around the room? Is that? Oy vey. <laughs> uh, no. I think So this is, uh, I think it's
1: more like the, you know, sort of like the chairman's award yeah. or something like that. The, the chair of Isaac International gets yep. to appoint one person. And, and she was recognized this year at their big conference last month. So big congratulations to Gail for that. Yeah. Uh, great work. And, and she's done a lot of work in, uh,
0: promoting women in cybersecurity, which I think was one of the reasons why she got that award. So yes, definitely congratulations to Gail.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then finally here from the news perspective, congratulations to Dale Drew. Dale has uh, headed over to Zayo as the new CISO. So Zayo is a big internet provider and data center company here in Denver. And this is uh, this is Dale's next stop. And he had previously been the chief security officer for level three, then, then after they were purchased by CenturyLink, he became the ch- chief security strategist, and now he's moved over to Zayo as the CISO. So congrats to Dale. That's awesome. Right. Uh,
0: so let's move on to our
1: Slack message Slack of the week. Message of the Slack week. message of the week. Slack message of the week. Congratulations to uh, Daniel, Daniel Ayala. Daniel Ayala, yes, for the information he had shared about the U2F for Chromebook. So it's been a good conversation in the channel about uh, what it – what U2F is a two-factor. Basically, it allows you to use the power button on your Chromebook as your fingerprint reader. So you push the button, it authenticates to you right there. Um, good conversation in the channel about you know using a Chromebook versus a a Windows laptop versus a MacBook and the price differences and the security differences and and then I come in saying, well, well, where do I put my music if I use a Chromebook? <laughs> but you can't have music on your on your machine anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I got to figure that out. Anyway, thanks a lot to that. And, of course, thanks to Andre Gata, who is our sponsor for the Slack message of the week. Andre has been a great supporter for us. Um, Daniel, you'll get to pick something from the Colorado Equal Security Store, and Andre will get that set, shipped over to you. So
0: I want to know how many people are going to turn their Chromebooks off by you know,
1: accidentally using the power button um, as a fingerprint reader. It's probably not that kind of power button. It's probably the kind of power button that only turns things on. Oh, okay. It's not, not the old school button. Uh, Hey, should we move over to jobs? Let's talk about jobs. Yeah, so there's a couple of great jobs over at Ping Identity. Uh, Ping, we are looking to hire a senior security analyst that will work on one of my teams, the infrastructure security team there. Uh, That position will be focused on helping us secure and monitor our environment, both our SaaS environment and our corporate environment. So look out on the website and send me a note if you want to talk about it. Also Ping is looking to hire a site reliability engineer who's focused on security operations. So this is someone who helps run our product, uh, our production environment, so the, the whole SaaS ping stuff, but we'll be working on the security projects that are important to my team in that, in that area. Uh, so next, eFolder is looking for a security and compliance analyst. So you can go work with Joshua Foltz over there. Uh, Cherry Creek High School is hiring a security specialist focused on high school. Uh, University of Colorado is looking for a security analyst. First Bank Holding Company is hiring an information security project analyst. S&P Global is looking for a director of security architecture. Carbon Black is hiring a senior threat researcher. FireEye is looking for an industrial response security consultant. Optive is hiring a vice president and general manager of emerging services. Wow. And then finally, Overwatch ID is uh, hiring for some developers. So if if
0: you're a developer and want to go work for a security company... They're looking for a, a senior C, C++
1: software engineer and also a Java software engineer. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and dive into jobs as well. Does a rem- Excuse me. I, we just did jobs. Let's, we did. We did jobs. I feel let's like not do that again. Let's not do that again. Why don't we talk about events now then?
0: Okay. We, we can do events.
1: We have a event calendar on the website. If you're curious what's coming up in the future, um, events are, and, and there's a lot. So if you thought, hey, it's summertime and, and events are going to be slowing down, you were wrong and you're stupid <laughs> because they are really speeding up. So first, um, uh, this week on
0: the 12th and the 13th, ISSA Denver is doing their June meetings as part of that. Uh, this is when they
1: do their annual election for board members. Absolutely. You should come there and and just vote for none of the above to to really, you know, stick it to the man. That's right. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. Uh, SecureSet on the 14th is having their Hacking 101 PowerShell. So if you're listening and you don't know what Hacking 101 and PowerShell have to do with each other, you should definitely go. Because this would be Agreed. a really good opportunity for you to figure out what you're missing. Uh, on the fifteenth,
0: ISC Squared is doing their secure summit Denver. It's a full day event, right? It is. They do this uh, once a year. ISC Squared comes to town and, and brings some people to talk.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I don't know who's going to be there, but I bet it's going to be pretty good. I hope. Uh, ISC, excuse me, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing their June meetings on the nineteenth and twentieth. That's their Tuesday night dinner. Their Wednesday night, excuse me, Wednesday afternoon lunch uh csa is doing their chapter meeting also on the 19th on the 20th issa denver is doing a june happy hour and that is going to be held somewhere i don't know why i started this sentence without having the answer for it but it's going to be held somewhere really great in the uh Wazi area it's going to be downtown at uh oh it's it's at the CyberGRX grx headquarters pretty awesome nice
0: Uh, Densec is also doing their monthly meetup on the 20th. So this is at a, a bar somewhere that they will announce, um, on the, the day of
1: or day before, uh, it's, it's been downtown lately. So it's probably something like wine coop. I know they've met at the wine coop a bunch of times. Um, and then there is a AI for GDPR compliance conversation on the 21st of June. And that's going to be an interesting meeting with the GDPR meetup groups. And then finally, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing one of their mini
0: seminars on June 23rd. Yeah. It's not many seminars. It's a mini seminar. It's mini,
1: not many. <laughs> they have many, mini seminars, yeah, but this one, one is many, a, many a singular mini seminar. Yeah. This is a, a monthly series that they do where basically you get together for four hours on a Saturday morning and just get little snippets of like an hour long presentation. It's like a mini conference really. Um, and a good way to get CPEs and meet some people. Exactly. So that takes us to the end of the news. I feel totally satisfied. As do I. Um, so, hey, what are we going to talk about in the future, guest? Who are you, who did you interview this week? Yeah, so I talked to uh, Mike Morris, who is the
0: CTO of Route 9B. Uh, you may be familiar with Route 9B because they were the number one company on the Cybersecurity 500 for uh, several iterations of that list. They're down in Colorado Springs. And uh, I, I talked to Mike about that issue in particular, um, about the company. They had had some... I don't know, some tumultuous times with yeah. um, parent company folding and, and other things like that. But, uh, you know, talk to him about uh, what they do and, and
1: where Mike has been. It was good. In, you know, good interview. Awesome. Well, appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. See ya. This is Rob Winter, chief information security officer at Boulder community health. Welcome to car out equals security. For car out security professionals, by car out security professionals.
0: is Alex Wood with Colorado Equal Security, and I am here today with Mike Morris, CTO of Route 9B. How are you doing, Mike?
2: I'm doing good. Thanks awesome. for having me on here, Alex.
0: Yep. Appreciate you being uh, being here. Uh, glad to finally get a chance to talk to you guys. We've been going back and forth for a little while here trying to figure out a time that works, so I'm glad we, we got finally got it figured out. Um, so we are here in your, your beautiful offices in Colorado Springs. You guys have uh, quite the setup here. Um, I, I love the... The layout here, we've got the, the fancy lights and everything like that, it, it, it's a cool space. Um, so why don't we start uh, by uh, just giving a little background on you, um, you know, how you got your information security start,
2: um, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, prior Air Force. I spent 10, just under 10 years in active duty Air Force, I was enlisted guy. Uh, started out as an intelligence body. So. First duty assignment was Hawaii. I got tossed into a counterterrorism mission out there. Uh, They taught me all the uh, telephony-type things while I was in, and then uh, during that time, the Air Force was standing up the 315th Network Warfare Squadron uh, to be able to go through and conduct operations. It was the Air Force's premier operations uh, organization. So I did uh, worked out in Hawaii for four years, tracking down terrorists and things of that nature. And then from there, I was pulled back, went into, Fort Meade and went through the Air Force's uh, training program basically to turn me into a cyber operator. And then from there, I led counterterrorism operations as a tech lead inside there. I wrote the Air Force's initial CFETP for cyber operations. So I was one of the first few folks conducting ops. I think the seventh overall inside of the 315th. And then uh, stepped out, became a private contractor, and then Eric Kipkins gave me a call. He's the CEO of Route 9B. He gave me a call, asked if I want to changed the world and changed the way cyber's done and so jumped on board and and haven't looked back since. So what is it like being trained um, in the military for,
0: for that sort of stuff? Um, is, it, is it a lot different than you see in the civilian world? I'd imagine it is.
2: Oh it certainly is. I mean if you think about it in the civilian world the way most folks are trained is you know they'll go through a comp sci degree program or something and, and unfortunately most of that training is 1995 hacking at its finest, right, that they're, that they're learning to be able to provide defense. And most of your security products are, are already going through and identifying those. So in the military, what's nice is the military's learning firsthand kind of that new tradecraft, right? They're learning how an adversary maneuvers. They're learning, they're learning nation-state level attacks. And, and so what I'd say is the military folks have an upper hand compared to what the commercial sector is, is really seeing, and just because the amount of data and visibility that the government has over, over some of these other entities. Do you think that there's stuff
0: that we can learn on the, uh, on the private side from what they do in the military? It's, are there ways that we could do things better in terms of training or, or getting people prepared?
2: Yeah, so what, what I'd say is they're actually, the commercial sector is really coming around in the last couple of years. So when, we, when I stepped out of the government, one of the big things I wanted to be able to do and what Route 9B as an organization wanted to be able to do was change kind of that mindset. And so what you're seeing now is commercial entities, your financial institutions, your energy grids, et cetera, are actually employing many military folks to come in and kind of stand up their environments. And so that includes building a brand new kind of culture, I guess is what I'd say. And that culture includes developing their own cyber operators, their own hunt teams, um, as well as educating their folks on some of the trade craft that's out there so that they're not just stuck with, as I was kind of mentioning, the comp sci education and right. the initial kind of, the initial, hey, here it is, cut your teeth on it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so
0: what is your role here at Route 9B? What do you do on a, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah,
2: so I'm the chief technology officer. I'm, I guess I would summarize that as anything technology-related comes through me. And so that, that includes the security of our own organization, the engineering of unique solutions for customer sets, right, having my hand there. And then as well as the implementation of technology on the back end, so whether it be through security or through big data digestion, or through our specific products like the Hunt platform or our credential assessment capability.
0: Nice. So, and then I guess that leads us into, um, you know, what exactly is Route 9B and you know, what do you guys do and what services do you guys
2: provide? Yeah, so absolutely. So what I'd say is Route 9B's true differentiator is we are a hunting organization. So, so we pioneered Hunt, brought it into the commercial space in 2013. Um, you, you'll see now there's a lot of, lot of other organizations using the word. It's, it's overused, but really the, the difference is the way we look at it. What most organizations define as Hunt, and I'll, I'll start with that, is they're really a system log analysis or event log analysis. It's very reactive in nature. So what Route 9B's true differentiator is, is on the other side of that wall right there, we have a 24-7 ops facility. Our operators will conduct remote interactive operations for our clients, proactively surveilling the network, looking for an adversary, and then actively engaging the adversary. So it's it's basically kind of human defender versus human attacker mm-hmm. in real space, right? I call that kind of the cyber knife fight. So they're actively engaging each other and and being able to go do a takedown. If I was to, to make that more simple to understand I guess if you were pulling onto a military installation since we were talking about some of my background as I drive onto the military installation I will see a fence I'll see barbed wire I'll see cameras in each of the corners I'll see a police shack I'll see a barricade stopping me from being able to get on as I pull up if I'm supposed to be there for a meeting I will pull up to the guard who will probably have a weapon I'll hand them my ID they'll check my access and then they allow me through As I continue driving through that compound, I'm gonna see more troop formations, potentially with weapons. I'm gonna see armored vehicles. I'm gonna see dogs. I'm gonna see more cameras. I'm gonna see badged access at buildings. So in that model there, when you look at it, if I was to liken that to cybersecurity, right now what most cybersecurity firms do and what most, most businesses are doing and calling cybersecurity is they're putting up a fence with barbed wire and camera systems. All necessities, but they're really just perimeter security products. Every one of those things that I just talked about are defeatable. And so if I wanted to break onto that military installation, i bring a 13-foot ladder and I can now climb over the 12-foot fence. Now, the camera's gonna see me, sure, but someone's gonna have to get there in time and be able to figure out where I went. The only real variable in that, in that model there that I have to worry about in terms of if I was a burglar or breaking in, is the human guard with the gun that is walking through that installation? Because he's using those camera systems and all that perimeter security product to help him him navigate. And so I don't know if that human guard is going to shoot me or turn and run. And so where Route 9B plays is we are the human guard inside the network. We use all of the network telemetry capabilities, all those perimeter security products, whether it's a FireEye product or CrowdStrike or Splunk. We use the client's infrastructure that they've already invested in to use that as network telemetry or intelligence inside there, informing the human guard that's walking around the network so that they can know if they have to hurry up and run over and respond, or when they when there's nothing that's popping, they can be looking at each window, making sure that the windows are locked and the doors are closed. And so that's that's really our true differentiator. That being said, we play in a number of different verticals. We have basically our hunt division, but we do your traditional uh, IT security stuff, pen testing, vulnerability assessments, malware analysis, reverse engineering. I have an entire development division down in San Antonio that's responsible for my products that we sell to our clients. We have a training division, so we're responsible for the industry's first hunt certification, as well as we provide a good uh, portion of mission qualification training to the cyber protection teams and and other type operations. And then we have an MSS service offering as well that that includes a kind of proactive threat intelligence aspect.
0: Nice. So, um, so a couple of follow-ons to that. So one, uh, so you mentioned the the hunt part as being you know more proactive as opposed to the, the traditional reactive, you know, looking at as logs as they come in and, and maybe finding something. Do you feel like that that hunt uh, mentality can replace um, those? proactive uh, tools or you think that that's sort of uh, something you should do in addition
2: to that uh, the reactive? In addition, so what I'd say is that the defense in depth paradigm that has existed forever, right, being able to take all different layers of, of network telemetry, right, is kind of the way I look at it. Taking all that t- network telemetry is fantastic, but if you try to automate it just by itself like many organizations are doing. The human, def- the human attacker is always going to be able to defeat those passive technologies, right, at the yep. end of the day. So the way I see it is you need all of that true defense in depth uh, pr- traditional, but really you need to re- it's a redefinition of defense in depth. It's taking all of that, using that as intelligence, and then sticking the human defender back in the middle. So it's a combination of manned information security with automation. Tied in, right, to take care of some of the mundane tasks, and then allow the human to actively be able to engage and respond. So, do, how do you typically see your uh, your customers
0: using that sort of model? Do they continue to do the the reactive pieces themselves? They may have some monitoring or some tools that they look at, and then you know bring you guys in, sort of, for that that second level, the, the proactive, uh, you know, looking around on the inside of the network for threats?
2: So the answer is it depends, right? And I hate giving that answer. Yeah. But, but if I was to take a look at financial institutions, right? They've, many of your larger financial institutions have significant resources, significant funding. So for them, they wanna do everything in-house. And plus they have compliance and regular, regulatory compliance requirements. And so in that model, we will end up training them. We can equip them with our product and then they can have reach back support to our SMEs or we could put an FTE on site that's supporting them and and helping them as kind of the the advanced cyber expert. Then you have other organizations like retail where they've got very limited um, personnel in most cases, but they've got globally um, dispersed networks, right? And so in that model, often they'll have a very small staff. Those staffs are responsible for all the traditional IT administration and IT security. So in that model, we are security as a service play. We can either provide MSS services for them and hunt services, or they may have already contracted an MSS service provider like Adele SecureWorks and IBM, and then we provide the return on investment through kind of that proactive component, right? And so so you have two different varying uh, components there. So it could either be done as a service from Route 9B, or we can just equip them, train them, and and allow them to go. Um, And really what, what I find typically is it comes down to vertical that we end up going into as to how how sophisticated is their stock how much money have they, they put in and then really how progressive is their CISO do you guys ever find um, find
0: resistance to your services um, so my th- thinking being all right I'm uh, you gave SecureWorks as your example there right mm-hmm. so I'm paying SecureWorks to do um, their MSS work for me uh, secure came in and sold me and said hey you know we can detect all the stuff on your network we're gonna be proactive we're gonna you know do all this stuff um, and then you know then maybe I'm finding they're missing things or you know whatever it might be um, and I go okay well you know what else can you bring to the table and you come in and say hey well that's great they're doing this stuff but we can you know we can be uh, proactive on, on top of that and be even better if I was trying to sell that you know in terms of you know getting budget for for bringing you guys in um, it, it I would think it would be hard for me to go, well, I already have the service over here that's supposed to be doing this. Um, how is it that I'm gonna to need to bring in some other
2: service on top of that as well? Yeah, so what I would say is that, again, that comes down to how proactive is kind of the CISO in that environment. Um, and really where are they at as an organization, right? And and whether it's, I, I wouldn't just say Dell SecureWorks, I'd just say MSS as a whole, right? Yeah. And not calling out any one organization. What I find is most MSS, service providers although they they may paint themselves as proactive in nature their proactive capability really consists of going back and looking at at logs as i had kind of mentioned in the beginning right looking at network traffic after the fact and so although it may be near real time it's still very proactive in nature the way that we are employed when we come in is really it's unmatched in the industry right and what i mean by that it's a bold statement i understand but what i mean by that is we're, we're taking a snapshot in time of the endpoints, the network security products, everything else that the client, the client has inside of their environment. And we're doing, we're basically acting as an attacker inside of their proprietary network. We're reaching out, we're um, executing capabilities just in time, right, so an agentless technology that'll, that'll reach out, target the endpoint. We're very surgical and tactical in nature, so what we try to do is we try to understand that, hey, you are going to be breached Um, vice what everyone else is telling you. You're going to, uh, the adversary is going to get in. What you have to be focused on is stopping the adversary from being able to get to their goal or being able to obtain their objective. And so when we start our proactive nature, what we're doing is we're looking at the crown jewels of that organization or that air quotes here, critical infrastructure. And then from there, we slowly peel back the layers. And so really what what most organizations understand by the time we're done going through the pitch is that we're really a return on investment to everything else that they've bought, right? We are the now what for them, right, because in most cases what happens is the MSS service provider may identify, yeah, there was a breach, and then they tip that back to the client and the client says, what do I do now? And there's no answer for them. Where Route 9B's ability, based off that cyber knife fight kind of engagement I talked about, is we can go and actively engage that adversary at whatever level the client's comfortable.
0: Do you guys also do, um, when you just mentioned that, essentially like, um you know, maturity assessment or, you know, uh, recommendations for, uh, control coverage or, you know, your tools not doing this or,
2: you know, missing these areas, that kind of stuff too? We do, and, and really what we do is we, we have this concept inside Route 9B that we call root risk, which is really kind of, think of it as a report card for CISOs. It's really hard for CISOs right now to justify justify the spend, right, that they're going through. And so the way that most organizations are doing it, unfortunately, is they'll take their seam product and say, how many events did we see in here? And then they, they right. use that to, to justify back to the CIO and the CFO cfo the the problem is how many got by right that were undetected inside of there and so what we do is we provide, through our services, we provide the ability to show how many critical um, risks they have inside their environment so that if, for instance, our credential assessment capability, if they have 1,000 critical risks, they can say, well, I'm not going to fix all 1,000 today, but over the next quarter, I'm going to take 250 and fix those, and then the next quarter. And so they can show that their, their security team is actually making a difference and how much coverage area, to your point, uh, they've actually been able to, to have inside their environment.
0: Do you guys have a, um, a philosophy on, on how you look at, at the, um, th- those sorts of risks and the attacks that you're doing? I know a lot of, uh, a lot of people are moving towards um, you know, like MITRE um, attack framework and other things like that, looking at sort of categorizing the, the, all the TTPs of, of attackers and trying to more systematically figure out, okay, these are the areas where you're lacking. These are the, you know, the areas where you're covered. You guys use something like that? You build your
2: own or No, no, we do very similar models. I mean we have kind of our own methodology, obviously, inside Route 9B, but we we fit nicely the and attack framework and the cyber kill chain, right? Um at the end of the day. And really if you're a cybersecurity organization nowadays, you have to fit into those, right? Because everyone everyone knows those buzzwords. What I'll say though is for us it's very business context driven. And so what I mean by that is If I'm a retail organization or if I'm trying to provide security to a retail organization, I need to understand the business context of that retail organization because it's not going to be the same as a financial institution, let's say. Unfortunately, the way that cyber has been done to date is organizations have looked at their competitor and said, okay, what are they buying? I'll buy the same thing so that I can keep my job, right? And that's really really how they've kind of justified their spend. So for us, what we do is we try to help them adapt and tailor their environment around the attackers that would come after them. So understanding the business context and then understanding the attack groups and what the motive would be to come after retail organization X, will help you start to define what that security model needs to look like and so so our threat intel team um, staffed by former DoD guys as well right and and good commercial uh, commercial entities um, what they'll do is they will actually start to really map out the social footprint of that client before we go in they'll start to understand what would be the pain points of that client, they'll sit down with the CISO, sit down with the CIO, understand where, again, air quotes, that critical infrastructure is. And then they start reaching out through dark web components and whatnot and start trying to understand what attack groups exist that would attempt to penetrate them and then how would they come after them. And so it's really an outside in um, type approach when we're providing security, right, and outside looking from the outside back into the the core and then looking from the inside back to the outside and constantly making sure that there's no holes in the fences or that there's no car uh, uh, coming fast towards the organization right and so it's right. it's really trying to get out beyond the boundary um, but yeah, obviously legally and not not extending any of our capabilities outside their proprietary network
0: nice
2: so um you mentioned earlier that
0: you have a, a sort of a custom-built internal tool that you guys use to to help enable the hunt stuff that you guys are doing I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that tool is it
2: absolutely yeah, yeah. so we have the Orion hunt platform um, it's version 2.0 we just released it at RSA um, in fact it was actually voted as a CSO online magazine uh, top 10 hottest products at RSA so nice. we're very proud of that. congratulations well thank you thank you so the, the concept of the platform is is really I guess it's an agentless approach right and so what I mean by that and is we don't deploy any persistent agent, to the endpoint when we're going through to do collection, right, and so, and let let me step back from a security perspective why that's important. If you take a look at many of these EDR or EPP type platforms, uh, endpoint detection and response platform or endpoint protection platform as as they're called, EDR, EPP. What those do is they'll deploy an agent to the machine much, very similar to an antivirus, right? Um, But it'll allow for kind of remote management. Well, as a former attacker, Um, and having the skills, right, from from my DOD experience. If I would exploit onto a target, let's say, and I gain access to that target, the target X, once I get there, the very next thing I'm going to end up doing is taking a look and seeing what security products do they have installed on that device that I just exploited, as well as what passive technologies do they have surrounding the device. Then, contrary to popular opinion, I'm not gonna just lay down some command and control at that point, I'm gonna steal their settings, I'm going to understand that security product and then I'm going to bail. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to recreate it or go buy that infrastructure and I'm going to create myself a lab. And from there what I'm going to do is I'm going to test. If I do A and B, security product does C. So I'm going to do A and D. And then I'm going to constantly test constantly test that environment of everything new that I want to deploy because that's going to allow for me to maintain persistent access for several years potentially, right? So Those products are fantastic, but they essentially tip the hand to the adversary of the playbook of that security environment, right? So what we did is we took a a slightly different approach. We said, okay, we want to be able to collect similar types of data. We want to be able to do remote incident response, remote forensics, all from one centralized location. So I don't have to land Marines on the beach every time there's a potential incident. From here in the adversary pursuit center, I can reach out and touch anything in the world as long as I have a route and some form of access, right? What we do then is we, we start doing the remote interrogation inside the environment. So I might want to scan a thousand hosts today. Well, when I do, I'm going to put that, that list of thousand hosts in and then I'm going to select the type of payload that I want to deploy. And so for us, a payload is anything that causes a, an effect on the remote machine. That could be a collection. I might want to look at all the running processes on a Windows machine. Or I might want to grep through memory looking for a specific string that's inside memory remotely over the wire. And so it allows for just-in-time execution of each of the payloads to deliver some form of intended effect to that machine, whether it be collection or response activity. And so what we do is as we're going through using the hunt platform, that platform allows for all that interactive capability. Everything that we do out of the platform is a RESTful API, and and I don't mean to get too technical here, but now we're in my sweet spot, right? Um, So it's a RESTful API. So when the operator says, I want to run this particular payload against this particular host, that's an API um, hook. And so what that allows for is it allows for some of those automated routines we talked about earlier. We gave a platform when we created it, the platform was designed to allow the operator to interact and engage in that cyber knife fight aspect that I talked about. But we do understand automation is a big part of kind of the cyber ecosystem. And so what we've been able to do through the platform is we can actually deploy malware inside of an environment, right, as a a use case will say. As the malware goes back through a network uh, capture capability, let's say like extra hop or something to that effect, as it goes back out, if it hits a, trigger, a signature, right, maybe it's a, an identified command and control uh, server that's been identified through IP address or something. As it goes back through that network uh, capture capability, that can send a, a trigger event over to an orchestration software, something like a phantom or an NSA walk-off or something that that effect. Then from there, we've been able to trigger auto collection capabilities from the Orion Hunt platform to the target, as well as predefined auto response activity. So think of, I, I identify that adversary or APT and 1 is operating in the environment, and when he operates, he always uses some polymorphic code base inside there, and as part of his operation, he always follows these seven steps, seven different steps, right? Or these seven steps in, in unison every single time. So through those types of capabilities, I can predefine and say if I see step one and two and three and four, I know that step five is going to be X, and then the platform can auto trigger a response activity to disrupt the adversary from being able to execute step five. We've been able to actually collect the malware, um, both. Directly from memory as well as off disk, and then shove that into uh, like Cuckoo or some of your your sandbox environments, yep. and so so through that deployment, we've been able to have that inside of our environment full autonomous full execution and then we allow for the human because that takes care of some of those basic uh setups right like lateral movement and things that are are pretty 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 canned type exploiter tactics um, we've been able to, to auto collect and auto respond in those environments and then allow the human to start looking at the the more difficult tasks and be able to then roll those back into things like the orion platform or we've recently invested in Darklight, which is a expert system right which then can um, pre-populate the way a human would respond, put those playbooks in, and then ultimately help trigger directly to the platform for collection.
0: Yes, yeah, so I mean, it sounds like because of the way that you guys um, operate, instead of doing you know, more of a continuous monitoring, it makes more sense for you guys not to have that agent that th- that's there that's always collecting data, right? Because that's, that's, you know, you look at your Carbon Black or, uh, or other EDR products like that, it's all right, well, we don't know exactly what we're looking for, so we're going to collect every piece of data that we can possibly think of always, and then at some point we can look at that data and figure out what's going on. Yep. You guys are being a little bit more surgical, it sounds like, and oh, hey, we, we see some sort of indicator, all right, now we need to go out and do X, Y, Z, Z. Yep. Uh, to, to go ahead and remediate this or you know, other steps like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I'll tell you, those EDR platforms, right, um, I know I, I kind of probably sounded negative, But they do serve a purpose, right? I mean, they are fantastic sources of data. And so what we've been able to do on the back end, because we'll leverage those if our clients have them, what we do on the back end is we're actually cross-correlating data from the EDR platform. So like if they had a Tanium, let's say, that's doing live streaming, or you mentioned Carbon Black, I can live stream everything from that host, and then what I can do is my just-in-time execution against a similar host and say, let me take a look at the memory structure. Oh, there's a DLL inject directly into a running process here. It wasn't identified by the EDR platform, but I saw it. Now let's form, formulate some type of response, whether it's through their product or through ours. Yeah. So since you don't
0: have an agent, you do have to have some way to get access. Mm -hmm. How does that part work? Is it service account based? Is it, uh, how is it that you actually get access to the different uh, yeah, systems you're trying to get access
2: to. It's, it. it's really tailored. So the, it was designed to be very modular in nature. So I can actually yeah. deploy my payloads because there's both uh, remote payloads and then I can dump them out as local payloads. And so what that means is I can take a payload and say, I want to throw it over top of Tanium or I want to toss it over top of NCASE Enterprise or okay. whatever have you, right? Got it. Um, so if the client has a significant engineering aspect and says, this is only approved in here, then right. hey, we're going to facilitate that. Now, similarly, what we can do and what's worked pretty well is we try to blend in with the, the operating environment. So we'll typically ask for some form of credentials if we go in they'll give us some form of elevated creds that can do remote interrogation right that that has has those accesses and that can vary sometimes they want to give us domain admin creds depending on their staff or other times we'll say hey create us credentials that'll last for two hours and then lock them out so there's no potential replay right and then from there what we'll do is we'll we'll shove over a payload the payload acts as a stager and we try to do direct memory injection everywhere possible and so the idea is using that offensive mentality to provide defense. We don't want, if there's an active thinking adversary on that machine, for the adversary to be able to copy off our capability right. and know what we're trying to do. So the stager will go across, and then from there, every time we go and deploy one of the payloads, the payload gets injected into memory, we do the collect, and then we clean up after ourselves. And so then at the end, we basically self-destruct. And then we use encrypted communications for, for the full path back. Um, and then, and then like I mentioned, we clean up everything. All that forensic residue that they'd be able to leverage is all pulled off of the machine. Um, minus we leave obviously event logs and things like that from a a chain of custody standpoint
0: nice Uh, so I want to switch gears slightly Um, that that was all super interesting I thought that was great Um, the uh, a lot of people uh, you know we've talked about route 9b a a number of times on the show but uh, besides that a lot of people might not be familiar with you guys and actually the way that we became familiar with you was a couple years back Um, There was uh, some some scuttlebutt on the Internet, Um, you know, Brian Krebs and some other folks. um, I'm not sure exactly why, but essentially called you guys out, said, hey, there's this Route 9B company. You know, there are a bunch of frauds or I don't remember the exact wording um, around that. But uh, first of all, I thought it was sort of interesting that they would uh, call you guys out. But I wonder if you
2: have any backstory on that or or wanted to, to speak to that at all. Yeah, um, so around that time, I think what you're talking about is probably the APT 28 report. What ended up happening, and that was May of 15, if my dates are correct. What ended up happening was our threat intel team had, put, had identified indicators of compromise um, and had identified APT 28 pre positioning for an attack against financial institutions and others. They released a report. There was um, some heavy marketing, right? That was Route ninety yep. very early in our stages. Um, the heavy marketing, a little bit of chest thumping going on in there, right? And, and yeah. not afraid to admit it, but you have to you have to start somewhere, right? right. And so so it came out with our first report. Um, then what you saw was Krebs said that it was incorrectly identified as African fishing thread, and then obviously he had a much larger follower base than us. Um, what I'll tell you, right, is outside of that, what I'll tell you is that since that report has come out in, in May the malware hashes that we identified as well as the command and control server that were included in there were later um, used in the German Bundestag egg uh, exploit that ended up happening against the German parliament. That was then attributed shortly after our report, about a month or two later, um, by Claudio. Uh, he's a pretty famous researcher. Uh, Claudio is the one that did the investigation and he verified that both that command and control server as well as the malware hashes were APT28. Russia, potentially Russian nation-state. Um, since then, that same command and control server has been linked to APT 28 and has been in other reporting um, that's been utilized. And so what I'd say is, initially we were, no one really knew who we were, and that report coming out I think was was potentially for, for organizations when they saw it, like a Krebs or something. Uh, hey, who is this Route 9B organization? Right. And how, how are they far exceeding the fire eyes and the crowd strikes of the world, right? That should be putting these right. types of reports out. And so, and then just the linkage that's there. And so so what I'd say is that, that was kind of the initial um, component that, that came out. Um, um, I guess what I'd say is we were later reported a second time um, by Brian Krebs. Um, I think it was uh, rest in peace Route 9B. Um, yep. As you can see from the spaces that you're sitting in today, uh, Route 9B is not rest in peace. We are still very good and we're thriving. What I'll say is the organization, um, what the events that happened last August timeframe, what ended up taking place was a foreclosure on the publicly traded company. And so so to clear up any confusion, you have Route 9B, the cybersecurity, the Route 9B LLC, which is the cybersecurity arm, um, which is us, right, and yep. it's always been us. And then what you had was you had a parent company we were a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company and the parent company was route 9b holdings which was being traded on nasdaq the senior preferred stockholders at the time decided to foreclose on the parent company which was route 9b holdings so two separate entities here right route 9b llc route 9b holdings child and parent and so they decided to foreclose on the parent company which was route 9b holdings we were a wholly-owned subsidiary underneath, the foreclosure ended up taking place, and then Tracker Capital ended up coming in and acquiring the cybersecurity component, which was us. I think the problem with the, the reporting that ended up taking place is there was confusion between the name, between Route 9B Holdings, and then Route 9B LLC, and it looked like we, potentially looked like to, to the uninformed that we were one entity, when in fact we were really two separate, and all the cybersecurity assets were underneath of us. So I'm happy to report that, yes, we are not- You're still here? We are not, rest in peace. Yep. We, are, we are actively growing. Um, the organization's doing well, and, and we effectively came out unscathed. I mean, we have the majority of employees that were with us during the event are still on staff. Um, so so things, things are looking promising here.
0: Yeah, I'd also heard some reporting during that time that, you know, potentially you guys, your, your assets would be sold off, or, you know, you would be, um, you know, pieces, parts here and there, or, you know, maybe another company would, would buy you as part of a, um, a deal to make them, you know, make you their, you know, security operations play or something like that. Did you guys have any, um, any fear at any time that, that you guys were going to be affected by that?
2: No, to be honest with you, I mean, what we've built here to to us, we believe that we have the true differentiator in the cybersecurity space. We have, we have the most talented workforce, another bold statement, but we have the most talented cybersecurity workforce that, that you could have, especially for being the size that we are. Um, so for us, I mean, obviously going through that event, there was lots of phone calls from many large organizations, right? One, to try to recruit our people, but then also try to bring us, bring us on, on staff as, as a potential other entity of theirs or another right. subsidiary. I'll tell you that uh, we felt very confident going through it, and that's how we were able to keep the people together, that we'd come out unscathed on the back end. And I'll tell you, being private, is uh, it's a godsend, I think. I'm, I'm much happier in kind of this role because we get to ha- be heads down, focus on execution, and not have to worry about criticism from organizations or people like Brian Krebs.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, th- that you mentioned your workforce. Um, so we are Colorado Equals Security, um, you guys are down here in Colorado Springs. Most of the, the coverage that we have um, is up in the Denver area since, you know, uh, Rob and I are, are Denver based. But, you know, what is it that makes Colorado Springs um, so great for, for cybersecurity workforce?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what I'll, what I'll say there is a couple different factors. Colorado is a beautiful, beautiful state. Um, sure is full of tons of outdoor activities, right? And so from a recruiting perspective, it really helps because you can take some of the DOD uh, entities, right? Which are most of the talented workforce there is located in Maryland or San Antonio or Georgia, right? Um, And there's a good portion up here as well, But, but many of those folks want to be able to relocate. So it allows for the relocation components, allows for them to be able to, you know, to be able to go and recruit folks and bring them into the state. Um, in addition to that, I mean, you have military installations right up the road, and then you have a very, very um, unique kind of small business um, entrepreneurial ship that takes place between Denver, Boulder, and then here, which presents a, a good portion of folks that are coming out of college that want to move into the cyberspace, want to move into the security space, and they're already in our backyard. Yeah so uh, did you did you come to colorado springs specifically for right route 9b or were you here prior to that no so i came here when we decided the headquarters was going to be here um eric Kipkins, our ceo had already lived here and so when we took a look at different locations i was living in san antonio at the time when we took a look at different locations where we had put it we felt that with route 9b we wanted to change the way cyber really was being done right we wanted more of that proactive approach and really what we wanted to do was we wanted to stop a cyber 9-11, right? We wanted to be focused on the adversary. And so we felt where else to put it than right in the heart of America, right? Let, put, it, put it right right in the center. And so there's, there's a couple reasons for that. Well, one, you have NorthCom right up the road, and we felt at the time that, hey, you know, cyber right now is really focused around IT assets. But, well, that's what most people were focused on. But your nation states are going to be focused around energy. They're going to be focused around satellites. They're going to be yep. focused around all your military-type initiatives and objectives, right? And so for us, having, having that in our backyard, we figured, hey, why not why not put it there? Plus, you have the military installations in close proximity um, to, to be able to go and recruit some of the staff if, and when they go to get out, right? It, it allows for them to, to transition into a commercial entity that has a very similar culture to them and so we put the headquarters here in colorado i relocated from san antonio we do have facilities still in san antonio where most of my dev staff sits and then we've got our facilities in maryland hawaii idaho you guys didn't decide to, to headquarters in hawaii that
0: seems like a pretty, pretty <laughs> yeah. logical place to put your headquarters unfortunately it's pretty expensive <laughs> <laughs> i got to imagine i got to imagine it does seem like Hawaii is a, a pretty central place for a lot of application security stuff, though. So you guys could have gotten a lot of AppSec people. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, the the one other thing that I wanted to touch on, um, we've covered um, several stories on, on the podcast about the the Cybersecurity Five Hundred. Um, it's it's a report, as I'm sure as you know, that comes out um, talking about the the 500 most innovative cybersecurity companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were at the top of that list um, for several versions of that list um, and then the most recent one you guys had an, an amazing drop I think almost 150 places down the list um, what's up with that I guess
2: yeah so so Steve Morgan and the folks over at the Cybersecurity 500 have their own own method to be able to go through and assess organizations yeah um, it's it's mainly focused essentially around the types of clients that you attract and then the business model that you have um, for us, I, I think, to be honest with you, we still have the most unique business model in the space, as we've talked about in here. And so when we were, when we were number one, you would find that probably around the same time as potentially the foreclosure and, and some of that confusion is really where we started to, started to drop. And so, so really, it comes down to the way that they do their assessment based off of their board discussions and I guess on their most recent, um, on their most recent kind of assessment, they felt that we're, we're further down the list.
0: Do they talk to you guys about that, or is it all um, external uh, entities that they talk to?
2: No, they'll have they'll have um, communications. Mostly, what they'll do is they'll talk to clients or folks that are using us or where we're involved in the industry, and then then whatever their criteria is to be able to come up with kind of that assessment is is really how they do it. Gotcha.
0: Well, uh, we are getting close to the end of time here. Um, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered
2: yet? No, I. I think uh, I think this has been this has been really good. I, I think we got to go through the products, walk through the company, do some level setting yeah. on some of the the previous uh, publicity. Uh, like I said, I mean, it couldn't be a better time inside of Route 9B. We feel confident about the future. I think we're in a really good spot to change the way cybersecurity is done. Right? Instead of just being focused on IT security, like most most organizations, we're really we're adapting a different model which converges IT security, intelligence, and OT security together. So, so I just appreciate the time to be able to to walk through who we are and that you know we're still here and we're we're moving.
0: Awesome. Well, Mike, I appreciate the time. It's been great talking to you. Uh, this has been Colorado Equals Security, and we'll talk to you next time.
2: That's great. Thanks.
0: Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado Equals Security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com.
1: Until next time, remember Colorado Equals Security security.